Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Tamang Sankhang Namasami. Welcome to another Sunday afternoon at uh, Amravati. So uh, the uh, the theme for the afternoon's talk, the title is um, "How Can I Stop This Story Making Factory?" Which is an interesting title. Uh, I didn't make it up myself, but at uh, the <coughs> Different members of the Sangha contribute these uh, themes, different uh, ideas for these talks. And uh, this was one that caught my eye. I think all of us uh, have the experience, to some extent or another, of the, uh, the mind going on and on, just endlessly uh, chattering away. And uh, at first, I wasn't particularly conscious of this. Um, uh, I didn't start to uh, try and do any kind of meditation really until I was uh, 21 years old and uh, started living in a monastery in Thailand. Um, I, I kind of entered Buddhism in an odd way. I, I was already in a monastery before I started to learn how to meditate. So, so I've never really been a lay Buddhist. Yeah. So I was. Uh, <coughs> I encountered. Uh, uh, I went to the monastery in order to. Um, have a, a free place to stay, <laughs> and then uh, which I thought was a good deal, you know. But, uh, but, uh, <clears throat> it was a, a good opportunity have a, a free roof over the head for the night for two or three days, and um, then it, things took off from there. <laughs> but um, having arrived in the monastery and then uh, having been given a place to stay for a few days, then uh, I asked the monks, you know, what. what what it was that they did, and then they started to explain about meditation. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely have the need to to do uh, to try that. That sounds very useful, very helpful. And so it wasn't until I started to try to meditate that I realized just how uh, unstoppable uh, the chattering mind was. Uh, it was completely, um, uh, say, uh, uh, unapparent to me. You know, just in the midst of a of a uh, an average uh, sort of busy student's life in in that era, uh, my mind was just going on all the time. But I never really stopped to look at it. So the fact that it was endlessly thinking and um, commentating and opinionating about uh, life, the universe, and everything, it wasn't ter terribly obvious to me because I never tried to stop it. As soon as I started to pay attention, and that the the monks said, "Well, you know, the way you meditate is you." You bring your mind to concentrate on your breath, and you hold your attention there on the breathing. Uh, so when I, I I tried to do that and taking the breath as a as a still point, as a, a reference point uh, in the in the mind, it was suddenly apparent how this thing never stops. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on, and it wouldn't uh, wouldn't stay on its uh, appointed object. Wouldn't uh, stay on the breath for more than a few seconds before. <laughs> Flying away in some different direction, and uh, the first thing, well, hang on a minute, no, no, I just, uh, I need to pay. I mean, I need to pay closer attention. I should make a bit more effort because surely I can, uh, I can be a bit, um, I can do a bit better than this. But uh, no, uh, no matter how hard I tried, with the, with the greatest uh, intention and, and will in the world. Yeah, I couldn't seem to keep my my mind on the breath more than a few seconds, you know, ten seconds, fifteen seconds at the most, and then you know, away it would go again. So that was the the point when I realised, wow, oh, this thing never stops. <laughs> this mind, it just goes on and on and on. And so uh, then I realised, well, it's probably been doing this my entire life, <laughs> but I've just never really noticed, never turned my attention in. Uh, inwards long enough to really see what the mind is doing, but as uh, because of being so busy and active with um, uh, everything else that was going on in my life, uh, just uh, 
living and uh, going to university and, and uh, spending time with friends and traveling about, filling the mind with all sorts of interesting things and, and activities, never really noticed what the mind was doing. But when you bring things to a stop, or you, you try to and you pay attention, you realize uh, this is really a story-making factory. This really is a, a generator of thoughts, uh, just like a volcano or a fountain, just throwing out one thought after another after another, and uh, just deciding, oh, I think I'll stop thinking. <laughs> I think it would be a good idea for my mind to be quiet. Just having that thought, just having that, that idea, uh, didn't seem to have very much effect at all. So it was um, uh, the uh, a kind of um, salutary lesson, first of all, to, to recognize how uh, uncontrollable the mind uh, and once we notice how the, the mind and by, by the way is that a familiar experience <laughs> but not that I'm psychic I just you know the, the <laughs> but it's uh, generally the case that uh, when we when any one of us stops to, to turn the attention inward and to watch what the thought processes are, are doing, then uh, then we realize you know, this uh, <clears throat> this mind uh, just creates an endless uh, string of thoughts and associations and memories and projections and opinions and just goes on and on and on. And it never even really seems to finish a sentence. You know, <laughs> gets halfway through and then off on a different tangent and then, another, and then another and then another and then another and then another. So when we, we see that the mind is so active and so busy, and then we begin to notice how oppressive that can be, that actually that endless thinking, the, the story-making factory, can be um, uh, productive of a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, just the, the, the um, capacity of the mind to create worries and, and uh, internal difficulties and stresses so that we can't sleep properly at night, we're, we're always getting uh, upset in different uh, situations, um, say, uh, feeling nervous or feeling uh, uh, irritated or feeling, uh, say, um, uh, excited or, or carried away by different situations. Just because of what the mind is adding on to, um, uh, a, say, an encounter with some other people or a job that we have to do or a, uh, a situation that we have to deal with. So it can be that the, the, the thinking capacity of the mind becomes like a, a kind of inner tyrant, endlessly um, making our life more difficult and complicated and confusing. You know, even simple things like you know, going into a, a cafe and ordering some food, or, <laughs> or uh, meeting uh, members of your family, or, or coming to listen to a Dhamma talk in the monastery. <laughs> you know, simple everyday things uh, can be fraught with all kinds of, of projections and uh, anxieties and and worries about what the uh, uh, what the other people think about us, or um, whether we're going to get something right, or um, whether someone's going to take my favorite spot. You know, <laughs> this even in a meditation hall, you know, you can uh, you can experience uh, feels of um, ownership, ter territoriality when someone you come into the, the meditation hall and someone has taken your seat. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even your place, you know, it's just, uh, uh, but somehow you've claimed ownership and the mind has created a story about how you have to sit there, and that's the right place, the best place for you to be. So when we, we begin to witness how much of a tyrant and a tormentor the, the thinking mind can be, then um, we can uh, say, wish uh, to switch it off in any way uh, possible. And so sometimes we can uh, take meditation and the capacity to concentrate and use it as a kind of club to beat our thinking mind into submission. Like, you know, Shut up! <laughs> Smash! And, and just using our will and effort to just force the mind to be quiet. And sometimes, if, particularly if we have good powers of concentration or a lot of will, we can, we can make that happen. But that kind of inner quietude is rather like... Um, and taking a, a, a taking a, a busy uh, a busy two year old and um, sort of wrapping duct tape around their mouth and 
expecting that to, to bring real peace and quiet. I remember when I was uh, thinking of busy, uh, busy three-year-olds, uh, every year my family used to go on a, a summer holiday to visit my grandmother's relatives in, uh, in Ostend in Belgium. Their family had a hotel on the, on the seafront and the whole family would, would go over from England on the ferry, uh, the, the mail boat from uh, Dover or Folkestone, uh, it's a three and a half hour uh, uh, ferry ride across the channel to Ostend in Belgium. And uh, we'd uh, make all this journey together and my, my grandparents would, would rent a little cabin on the, on the boat. And I was very chatty as a young child. It's hard, hard to believe, I know. <laughs> but uh, apparently I was completely quiet for the first 18 months. And my mother even thought there was something very wrong with me because I just lay there in my pram and just looked. I didn't utter a peep. But at 18 months I started talking and I didn't stop. <laughs> for, for any reason. So we were on this, um, this uh, uh, boat ride across the channel and my grandfather, who was this very, very quiet, and uh, and sort of shy and um, and sort of um, gentle old Jewish businessman. Uh, he said, uh, "I will give you sixpence. I will give you sixpence if you stop talking for five minutes." <laughs> and at that at that age, uh, at, uh, at that I was like you know, four, five, three or four years old, you know, four or five years old. Sixpence was serious money. And I nearly exploded with the effort of trying to keep quiet for five minutes. And I don't think I could manage it. I think I didn't earn my sixpence. So um, just trying to stop the mind from, from uh, pouring forth its, its verbiage, all, all the words, just by force, just by suppression. It's like the, the sort of five-year-old Ajahn Amaro trying to be quiet for, for five minutes. The, you're just um, uh, applying pressure and um, and force, but it doesn't bring a very peaceful or, or beneficial result. And uh, trying to just suppress the thinking mind into submission, it just makes us explode, and uh, it brings a a, a, a very um, uh, say very painful and and uh, uh, even more uh, stressful and, and complicating result than than uh, even just letting the mind carry on thinking. So suppression of the thinking mind, just trying to stop it and make it go quiet um, by force, or just, or just uh, say using you know, drugs or alcohol to make it uh, to make it go quiet, uh, that uh, that doesn't really bring any kind of solution. But uh, rather, in, in the way of, of the, uh, the um, paths of Buddhist practice, rather we take the approach of, of understanding what well, what is it that, that's driving the the whole process. What's What's the, what's the fuel that the factory is running on in the first place? You know, why does the mind do this? And, and how can we learn to uh, say, uh, stop that, that whole process from, uh, from running so that, that we're not energizing that agitated um, proliferation uh, of thoughts in the first place? Well, there's a... Um, a very, uh, very helpful sutta, uh, discourse of the Buddha, where he talks about this this very process, where it's described, and uh, the story starts off with uh, the Buddha sitting under a tree in the forest, and uh, he's meditating by himself in the woods, and this uh, Brahmin uh, called Dandapani, uh, which means um, stick in hand, is a, and it seems like he was some kind of a professional debater, and uh, he was you know someone who would. Uh, engage people in argument as a kind of sport or as a, a way of life. You know, and, and in, uh, even today in, in India, um, if you want some entertainment at a family event, you know, like rather than sort of hiring a, hiring a band for your wedding, you, you hire a couple of philosoph philosophers and get them to debate, debate in front of you and ha have a good philosophical and spiritual argument. So Dandapani was one of these kind of debating Brahmins. And he saw the Buddha sitting under a tree and he thought, okay, I'll, I'll try my hand with this one. So he, uh, he goes up to the Buddha in this very kind of arrogant, strident way and says, So, uh, <clears throat> you're a wanderer, you're a yogi. What kind, of, what kind of philosophy do you teach? What kind of practice do, do you follow? Yeah. You know, what's, your, what's your spiritual path? 
you know, basically trying to provoke him or, or get an argument going so he could prove how, how wise and clever uh, he was. And uh, the Buddha responded by saying, um, uh, I, I engage in the practice and I espouse the principle of non-contention. <laughs> Not to argue with anyone in the world. So then uh, Dandapani, having heard that, is uh, as it says in the uh, in the uh, in the sutta, it says you know, he he uh, clicked his tongue, puckered his brow into three furrows, and and then strode off, having nothing further to say. So he's completely uh, frustrated by that. So then, uh, when the Buddha went back to the monastery and he recounted this this story, and uh, he uh, he talked about this and said, you know, that it's <clears throat> it's only when you've um, they remove the causes of, uh, for mental proliferation, conceptual proliferation. You know, this is uh, how we end uh, the quality of conflict. This is how we uh, say develop the mind, the heart of, of non-contention, is through truly understanding how the mind um, creates proliferations and gets attached to the perceptions that it has created. You know, how we, the mind creates stories and then gets lost in the stories that it creates. It's only when we understand this that we can stop uh, the, the causes of contention, contending with others in the world and also contending with ourselves. So he made a, a very brief statement on this and then and disappeared off and went into his kuti, his, uh, his hut, by himself. Probably having had his meditation interrupted in the forest by Dandapani, <laughs> it, it seems like he was also ready for a bit of solitude. So then the other members of the Sangha asked uh, Mahakachana, say, can you explain what the Buddha meant? Because Mahakachana was the one who was most well known for being able to explain in detail statements uh, uh, made by the, the Buddha in, in brief. And so then Mahakachana said, well, you know, you should really be asking the Buddha these questions yourself, you know, when you next have the chance, but I'll do my best to explain what I think he meant. And then <clears throat> what uh, Mahakachana explained, he said, well, you know, the way that this thing works is when the, uh, say for example, when the eye um, sees a, a mental object, when there is a, a light and the eye and then eye consciousness arises, we call this contact, the coming together of, of these three, of the of light, uh, of the eye, and of eye consciousness. When those three come together, we call that, we call that sense contact. When there is sense contact, that gives rise to a feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or neutral feeling. Yeah. When there is a feeling, then that gives rise to a perception. That the, the perception of saying you know, um, uh, a red color or a green color or blue color uh, in terms of light or a, a particular shape. Um, and so that that perception, sanya in uh, in Pali, that uh, <coughs> that word, the word sanya is related to the English word sign. So uh, it's like the, the shape or the form uh, of what's experienced. And then sanya uh, gives rise very quickly to thought, to vitaka. So then you, you see something, uh, the, the eye receives a light, uh, there's a perception, and then the thought says tree, <laughs> or it says you know, Brahmin approaching. <laughs> there's, a, uh, the, there's the thought that names the, the, the thing that's being perceived. And then, after the thought, after vitaka, then the thought gives rise to what is called papancha. So this is the, the main uh, subject for, for this afternoon, is this, um, uh, this, uh, what this word papancha refers to. The English, uh, best English translation for this is conceptual proliferation, the mind's capacity to create associative thought, one thought running on um, after another, after another, after another. Uh, papancha, and that conceptual proliferation then leads to what is called papancha sanya sankara, which is the the multiplicity of thoughts and perceptions and feelings that beset the heart and, uh, and give rise to the experience of a conflict. Basically, um, a me in here, a world out there, and the and a sense of stress between the two. So this is this is how it works. So you have contact, feeling, perception, thought conceptual proliferation, and then papancha sanya sankara, the, the whole multiplicity of, of thoughts and perceptions that uh, arise uh, from that pro uh, proliferation. So this is how the factory works. 
it all starts off with with a with a perception, hearing a sound, uh, seeing an object, uh, smelling something, tasting something, uh, or also a thought, you know, randomly arising memory or an idea. This also counts as a as a sense object. You know, within the Buddhist psychology, the mind sense is a is another of the sense organs. So the eye perceives light, the ears perceive sound, the mind perceives thoughts and emotions. So then, then the Mahakachana mapped out the process uh, like this and said, you know, this is this is how it is that as uh, uh, as the mind is influenced by perceptions, if the mind is untrained and um, uh, habitually following greed, hatred, and delusion, then it, uh, uh, in a very rapid succession, uh, you know, every everything that we see or hear or, or think, then that gives rise to an association, and off the mind runs. When I was uh, uh, starting my time at, at uh, Wat Pananachar, that monastery that I showed up to for a, a free, <laughs> a free place to stay in, in Thailand, uh, and I was uh, I was very inspired and, and very attracted by the the teaching and the way of life in the forest and uh, living in the uh, in the um, very simple down to earth way of a forest monk. Um, and I, as I said, you know, it was very clear to me how out of control my mind was. Um, but even though that I didn't experience very much much peace or inner quietness in the meditation, I, I had a lot of faith that this was the the right direction to head in. And it, what was really one of the things that was really striking to me was that for the first two or three years of my monastic life, almost everything that happened was like a cue for a song. Now, some of you will remember the, those sort of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies. You know the the road to Morocco, the road to Rio, and, one, and every so often one of them would turn to the other and say, that sounds like a cue for a song. And then they would burst into the next number. Right? This familiar to some? I see people nodding it. That sounds like a cue for a song. Well, my entire life, every day, seemed to be like, like that's like a cue, that's, that sounds like a cue for a song. And I'd hear a word that somebody would say or that some food would be offered and at the mealtime and, and then there would be just a, uh, <clears throat> the color of a, of, a, of a piece of fruit or a, a word somebody uses, used or the, the smell of, uh, of uh, some kind of, um, the, you know, the rain on the, on the earth in the forest and then <laughs> off, uh, off the, the mind would go. And, it would, and because I spent most of my teens filling my head with, with uh, pop music, there was a lot of songs in there. And I was, a, I was staggered by the amount of music I could remember. And, and not even just pop songs that I, I, I listened to on the radio, but even from when I was a small child, my, my sisters had these uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's um, musicals. The, 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 you remember LP records? <laughs> like South Pacific, Oklahoma. And uh, I could, my, my memory could come up with whole tunes, whole songs from Oklahoma and uh, South Pacific and uh, these musicals just you know, one, one little word, and then, uh, oh no, there it goes again. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh no. And uh, just the, the, you could see the mind's hunger for having some object, you know, something to, to get hold of, something to chew on, and everything would be a cue for a song, or at least a, a string of thought. So in, uh, in, un in seeing how this process works, you might think, well, okay, you know, understanding or having a, a map for how it works, it still doesn't get the thing to switch off. <laughs> so uh, well, we are fed up with listening to Rodgers and Hammerstein's uh, musicals or the, our own individual versions of it. Um, then uh, <laughs> it's important to, to, to recognize that um, the more mindfulness that we bring to to what's going on mentally, then the more that we can have an effect, because there's, as uh, Mahakachana mapped out in that that discourse. And, uh, and by the way, um, after uh, he um, um, uh, say had given this discourse, then uh, Ananda was listening to it, and then he he later on went to the Buddha. And he explained what Mahakachana had said, and the Buddha said, "This is very good. What Mahakachana said is exactly what I would have said, and there is no no difference whatsoever. He has said the words that I would have said uh, precisely." And um, 
So Ananda, in his usually uh, his usual effusive way, said, "Well, yeah, it's such a wonderful talk. It was so marvelous. It was so amazing. It was so incredible. It was so sweet. It was it was so delicious. It was it was like a a, a ball of honey, like a perfectly a perfectly formed sweet morsel." Um, what should we call this discourse? And the Buddha court said, well, you can call it the honey ball sutta, or the, the sweet morsel. So it's, that's why it's called Madhu Pindaka, it means the honey ball sutta, because it's a, such a sweet morsel of the teaching. So the Buddha confirmed that Mahakachana got it right, so that the more mindfulness that we were able to bring, then we're, the more we're able to see that process happening. And as the mind starts to, to go off on this this, uh, this kind of associative chain, so that we we uh, hear the sound of a of a bird, and uh, you say, oh, and maybe we hear a, a pigeon uh, sitting on the on the roof, uh, crowing in the morning, and think that sounds like a pigeon. When I was a child, I used to think those were penguins. Why did I think they were penguins? I lived in Kent, <laughs> but I was convinced there was peng there was penguins because that it sounded like what a penguin would sound like. like well, penguin, yeah, I've always wondered why do they call those chocolate bars penguins. That's very strange. Now, I wonder who, they actually employ people to think up names of chocolate bars. Actually, you know, I also wondered about, you know, color cards. When, you, when you're buying paint, all the paints in the color card, they're always strange esoteric names. Now, someone must have a job. I wonder if you can go to college and learn how to make up... Then you realize, hang on a minute. I'm now discussing the nature of, of choosing names for paints. And it started off with the sound of a bird. So then, uh, the more mindfulness you bring to it, the more you, you're able to recognize, yeah, well, hang on a minute. Um, I'm sitting here in the sala at Amravati, or I'm sitting here in my, my home, and I just heard, I heard the sound of a bird. There was a sound, and then um, the, the whole thing took off from there. So one of the, the ways that we can, um, say, use mindfulness and, uh, and say, helpfully and understand this process is that as soon as you realize that you're, you're completely lost in your thoughts, um, it's easier to do this in, in meditation, but also just in the ordinary flow of your days, you can do this. When you, you realize your mind has got carried off on some, some uh, extensive sidetrack, and you, and you think, you realize, now wait a minute, why am I sitting here trying to work out what kind of a college course you would do to learn how to name paints? Now where did that come from? So I was thinking about, the paints came from the thought about the chocolate bars, and the chocolate bars came from the thought about the penguins, and the penguin came from that strange uh, perception I had when I was a child. And that came from the sound of the pigeon. Uh -huh. So it all started off with just hearing that sound. There was, the, there was the, the, the sense contact, there was the pasa, the contact, then there was the you know, the feeling, it's a pleasant pleasant sound. Then there was the perception of, oh, that's the sound of a bird. So contact, feeling, perception. And then uh, I, I said, I thought, pigeon, pigeon. And then from the thought, from the vitaka, then the papancha, the, the, uh, the papancha mill started turning. <laughs> and then uh, off it went. So that you trace, if you, if you take the trouble to trace it back, to follow the, the whole string of thoughts back to where it came from, you recognize that even when you start off, uh, and, and it can often be a lot more emotionally loaded than thinking about paint color. <laughs> or maybe that can be a very emotive subject. So I know choosing paint colors can be something that has a lot of charge to it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it can be something more stressful, like, uh, how somebody has really done you wrong and how that awful person really should be set straight and that you know, he shouldn't be, be like this and she shouldn't have done that. You know, she always, she's always doing that. She, she knows it annoys me. And uh, creating a, a lot of emotional charge and, and stress within us. But uh, you know, we, can, we can trace it back from that, say, that stressful state where it's sort of me in a state of, of tension or uh, conflict with, with the world. As we trace it back, then it gets more and more simple. Whereas we start off at a place of, of uh, complexity and stress, then the further you trace back the whole process, the simpler it gets until you realize, oh, it was just a sound. It was just a sound, and, th and then this whole thing launched from that. So this, uh, this practice um, 
of following things back to the source. It takes a, a, an effort as a, a quality of mindfulness is needed for that, but it can be extraordinarily helpful. And um, uh, in the uh, later years after, this was a kind of practice Lumpo Sumedha would often talk about and encourage people to do. And I found out uh, later on that this, there was a, a great master of the Korean tradition of about three or four hundred years ago, the Chinul, who also developed the same kind of practice in, the, in, in Zen meditation in, the, in Korea. And uh, he used the term tracing back the radiance as a, a book of his teachings that's got that title. And uh, he describes in, in some detail the, the, this kind of methodology of how to, to patiently and steadily always follow the thought back to where it came from. And then <clears throat> when we do this, as soon as you notice that your mind has got lost in some kind of prolif proliferative excursion, uh, as soon as you know the mind's got lost, first of all, to, to just make a careful note, okay, what does this feel like? Here I am, I'm creating this, this, this uh, story in my mind about this particular monk who really is um, uh, an irritating person or this particular nun who I've really upset and I, or I've got to straighten things out with or, or this particular um, member of my family who's in, a, in, a, in a, a difficult state and it's up to me to try and make, <laughs> make them all right. So that you, as soon as you are aware that the mind has got lost in some proliferation, Take a note of what that feels like, that sense of responsibility, the sense of anxiety, the sense of desire or fear or um, uh, indignation. To let yourself feel that and recognize, okay, what's this like? What's this emotion in the body? Where do I feel this indignation or this anxiety or this pressure of responsibility or this, um, this uh, compassionate concern? You know, what's it like? Where do I feel it? You know, where is it in the body? What's its texture? And to, to let yourself be fully aware of that stressful, pained quality. And then as you uh, mindfully trace back the, the thought, the, the energy of the, the thought having um, been followed back to its source, then when you get back to the recognition, oh, it was just a random memory. It was just the, the, the smell of the, that particular dish at the, at the mealtime. It was just the sound of that bird or it was just the, the, um, the, the phrase that somebody used. It's just, I heard that sound, I smelt that, uh, that aroma, uh, you know, I saw that, that object, and then uh, that's where it came from. When you bring the attention back to the initial sense contact, again, notice how that feels. What does, what's the, 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 the tone, the texture of that experience? And just hearing the sound, or smelling the, the aroma, uh, seeing the object. And inevitably, whereas the where it starts out from, where you have, where you where you've ended up, there's a, a stressful, tense, uh, burdened, and um, insecure uh, or, or tight quality to it, agitated quality. When you bring it back, when you follow it back to its source, to its origin, to the sense perception, it's always extremely simple, <laughs> uncomplicated, and straightforward. Even a, a loud sound or a bitter taste or a, a a, a harsh color, it's just, well, it's just a color, it's just a sound, it's just a thought. And that, and if you let yourself really experience and fully know that quality of, uh, of simplicity, uh, then recognize, okay, <laughs> this is easy to be with, this is not burdensome, this is not difficult, this is, there's no insecurity or trouble associated with this. So this is one methodology of learning how to, to um, work with the, the conceptual proliferation and the, the, the stories the mind tells. Another kind of practice that's similar to this or related that uh, uh, many of you who will have listened to uh, Ajahn Sumedho's Dhamma talks over the years will be familiar with is making the thought conscious. And uh, so this is, again, it takes a, a degree of mindfulness and uh, an application. But when you are, say you're feeling some kind of regret, something that you've done, you feel uh, very bad about, oh, I'm such a terrible person, I, you know, I fell into that bad habit again, I said I wasn't going to do that, and I did it again, I'm such an awful person, yeah, there's no hope for me, they should just sort of take me out of the back of the barn and just finish me off, you know. You know, I'm a burden to society, I'm a, a, you know, just taking up space here, life would be much better off without me. 
or if you're upset with somebody else, like, uh, how could she do that? That's so terrible. You know, she knows that I don't like that. You know, she was at that meeting when we all agreed that we weren't going to do that, and now she's gone and done it, and she, I know she does it on purpose. <laughs> she's deliberately doing that just to make me upset, and, and that I'm not going to let her go. Not let her get away with it. She's not going to get away with it. And yeah, so we, we hear these kind of, um, uh, we all have our own particular scripts that we, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not reading anybody's mind in case you're worried, like, oh my God, how did he know? You know this, this, there is no, there's no uh, mind reading involved, it's just human nature is pretty much the same everywhere. So, so and to, to, to uh, hear what the mind is saying, and to and what uh, Lumpur Sumedha would would encourage is that when you you hear your 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 mind ranting on about what you're worried about, what you're excited about, what you've got to have, you know, I gotta have it, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. Uh, I can't stand it. You know, she's doing it again, uh, or I'm such an awful person. Whatever it might be, some kind of um, a pattern of thinking. As soon as you you notice, oh, the mind has got lost in one of its stories, you know, it's, it's got uh, carried away with this particular judgment, oh, this person is awful, or, or, uh, you know, or this, uh, this is a, a wonderful thing and I've got to have it, or uh, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an awful person or a wonderful person. If you then catch the thought, it's almost like as if our, our thoughts were playing on a, on a, a recording, like on a, I would say tape, but that's, that dates me even more, as, <laughs> as much as Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, but uh, replay the rewind. You know, go to a different place on the MP3 file. You know, <laughs> go back a bit uh, on the file, and you catch the thought and replay it, so that uh, you you are able to 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 listen to what your mind is saying. You know, very deliberately, and this is a very powerful practice because, uh, and, and I've used this a lot over the years. So, if you take that thought and you and uh, <clears throat> and then you replay it. But replay it in full consciousness, like saying, uh, <clears throat> "I'm just taking up space. The world would be would be much better off without me." Or say, "She's doing it again. I know she only does that to annoy me." And when you do that and you replay a thought in that, of that nature. You can't usually get to the end of the sentence before the whole thing collapses. Because those kind of, of thoughts of, of praising, of judging, of liking, of disliking, of, uh, of self-creation, you know, creating uh, perceptions about yourself or perceptions about others, they depend upon not really being seen clearly. They're sort of off in the wings and at the edges. And When you get them into, into the, the full light, you know, front center stage with, <laughs> with all the lights on, then they can't really stand up. You, you can see all the you can see all the strings. <laughs> you can see you can see how it's all held together. So when you when you do this, uh, and it's quite a, a, a simple practice, but it's incredibly effective. Just to to state that, like, if you were different, I would be happy. Right? You can't you can't even finish the sentence. It's not even a long sentence, but it just. Because before you even finish it, you know, oh yeah, <laughs> really, yeah, and you wouldn't find anything else to be upset about. Oh, congratulations! You know that you would be completely happy if someone's behaviour was was a bit different. Oh, and you realise no, it's and that's not it, and uh, you you begin to see how um, much the mind has just bought into its own projections, its own anxieties, insecurities, loves and hates, and habitual judgments. And uh, how it's uh, it's uh, so much of it is just driven by our own inner habits of like and dislike, our own insecurities um, that might maybe move towards greed and desire. If you're a lobachirita, a, a desire type, a greed type, uh, if they move towards a doubt and, and worry and, and fear, if you or confusion, if you're a mohachirit type, a, a confusion type. Or, um, or towards irritation and complaining and contending. If you're a dosa chirit, you don't have to memorize these. Three basic character types: loba chirita, greed type; moha chirit, 
delusion type, a dosa chirit aversion type. The kind of simple map of, of human psychology, <laughs> but the, where we get lost in these particular uh, uh, habit patterns. So if you you're, if you have those tendencies, uh, like your mind moves towards greed or moves towards aversion, then and that's a, a strong habit, then it just um, will pick up any kind of an object so that the, the, the process of proliferation then feeds on that tendency. So say if you're an aversion type, that you're, you're, you've created a lot of habits of negativity, you're creating the sense of self around complaining, criticizing, judging uh, others, that's where your sense of being comes from. <laughs> I mean, just the mind creates a continual list of what's wrong with with others, or what's wrong with the world? You know, that having a good grumble—that <laughs> uh, that's what makes us feel alive. Or contending with something, having a good argument, you know, having a, a, a or complaining and criticizing, you know, opening the newspaper, you know, <laughs> and having a good grumble, you know, and this, or that uh, it gives us a sense of being. <clears throat> and uh, or if we're a greed type, you know, that what we want to get, what we want to have, and the, the things that we we want to chase after. So then, that those habits uh, are say then they're they're like the fuel that the story making factory runs on, and so that uh, when we begin to see that process and we're able to say catch the a thought like, yeah, I can't believe she did that again. If only she wouldn't do that, I would be happy. And you realize when you hear that and you just freeze that and you you, you replay it, you realize, no. <laughs> It's just uh, just my mind, just my aversive tendency looking for an object. You know that, uh, <clears throat> as one one friend of ours put it uh, in a very kind of uh, neat way, he said the syntax of aversion requires a direct object. Those of you familiar with English grammar, <laughs> that the syntax of aversion requires a direct object. When your mind is is disposed towards aversion, anything will do. <laughs> You're just looking for a thing to be annoyed about or to complain about, or if it's greed, that uh, your mind will find some way of wanting <laughs> what it's hearing, what it's seeing, what it's smelling, what it's tasting. The 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 syntax of greed also requires a direct object, like I want that. <laughs> but it doesn't really it doesn't really matter what it what uh, what the object is. And in this way, we realize that the 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 mind is kind of shameless. <laughs> Anything will do to be to have an opinion about, to have a, a desire for, to have a, a complaint about. Anything will do, a, you know, any old rubbish will do. Uh, and so <clears throat> uh, to, to recognize how that process works and to, to recognize the, the, the suffering and the insecurity, the, the alienation that comes within us, when we follow that, then when, the more we recognize that pain, the painfulness of that, then the more we're uh, inclined towards Letting go of the the source, the cause, the the greed, hatred, and delusion—that's the fuel for the whole process. So that uh, that this uh, practice, I, I highly recommend. Again, it takes a bit of mindfulness, but it's really worth doing. And it's it's kind of shocking <laughs> how quickly your your well-formed opinions, loves and hates, all fall apart when you when you really sort of bring them center stage and put the lights on and, and look at them closely. They they all seem hollow and pointless. And that uh, they they fall apart, but then when they fall apart, and you realise, well, actually, I know I wouldn't really be happy if he did something differently. Yeah, you know, I don't. I, I know I wouldn't really be happy if I got that that thing. Um, it, it's a, it's just like a conjuring trick, and that, and then to recognise that that voice of wisdom in your heart that says, yeah, right, <laughs> I'm sure I'd find something else to be upset about. That uh, to listen to that and to be informed by that, and then that ameliorates the habit of. Following that that compulsion, that opinion, and that uh, uh, that attachment. So then, uh, <clears throat> this is a lot to do with learning how to listen to the mind. So learning to to listen uh, to our thoughts, and in this respect, when we're trying to deal with the the story making factory, and uh, learning to to relate to our, our thoughts and uh, our opinions, one of the biggest obstacles is that. We have this weird belief that because we think something, we assume it to be true. This is a theme I, I, I talk about a lot. But this is a very weird presumption to make. Right? 
Just because a thought forms in the mind, we take it to be a, an accurate representation of reality. This is a very peculiar thing to believe, because what we're thinking today might be very different from what we were thinking a year ago. And if we were right then, how can we be right now? Or if we're right now, how could we, be, how, how could we have been right then? And if, uh, if our thoughts, uh, our opinion uh, now, if we're so sure this is right, then in a year's time when we think something different, yeah, <laughs> what does that say about what we're thinking in the present? Right? I mean, the logic is not very complicated. <laughs> but yet, uh, we still assume, if I think it, it's true. And if other people think differently, they're wrong. Very simple. And they, they, they'll either see reason and, and allow themselves to be set straight, and they'll think like me, or they'll just continue to be deluded and think differently. That's how we function, isn't it? It's, kind of, it's crazy, but that's how we, we operate. So, uh, uh, the, one of the first steps in this is to, to learn to, to not believe your thoughts. Or as uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedha once famously said, right here in this sala, during a winter retreat one year, he said, he was sort of giving a Dhamma talk and, and talking about the nature of thought, and he paused for a moment and said, all your thoughts are garbage. All your thoughts are garbage. And uh, you can feel a few people say, well, hang on a minute. Some of my thoughts are very intelligent. And, you know, maybe all your thoughts are garbage. But, uh, but it, was that, it was a very insightful and helpful comment because when you, you say, okay, well, they all go in the, in the, rubbish, in the rubbish pile, then it gives you a, a, um, a, a different way of holding them. It gives you a different context that they are, if you more look at your thoughts as just so something that has you know, a vague relationship to reality, but it's nothing that, that's fixed or absolute or permanent, that it's a sort of a working hypothesis or, or a, a, a convenient fiction, um, then it's a, it can be useful. But when we take all our thoughts to be absolutely true, then um, this is one of the reasons why we end up being in conflict with others. Because if I'm, if I'm always right, I'm not going to meet with everybody who... Uh, and not, it's not going to be the case that everybody that I meet is going to think in the same way. Therefore, if I'm always right, then I'm going to keep meeting with people who are wrong. And then, the more I hold onto my rightness, then the more I'm in a state of conflict and separation from others. So the more that uh, we can recognize, well, uh, you know, my, my thoughts are all garbage, <laughs> and that uh, they are just um, convenient fictions that are, are useful for certain purposes and they can you know be have a certain value but uh, they're nothing you know absolute or reliable or permanent and uh, they're just a kind of thumbnail sketch of uh, of reality rather than an absolute reliable representation then when somebody thinks differently then you think oh that's different that's another way of looking at it <laughs> that's interesting i never thought of it that way rather than you you're wrong <laughs> or like idiot <laughs> You know, just because they, they express something differently. And so that capacity to um, uh, say to listen to your thoughts and to, to listen to the mind and not to believe in it is, is very, very helpful. To just listen to your thoughts as if you are listening to the neighbor's radio. I often use this as an example. So you didn't even choose the radio station. Again, I know talking about radios makes me dated as well, but <laughs> they are <laughs> still around. But the, the uh, listening to something that's the, uh, there's some some uh, news report or some advertisement or some documentary or some some story going on. You didn't even choose the station. You didn't even uh, you, you didn't you didn't create the story. But it's just this verbiage running through the airwaves. You can hear it. You understand the words. It's not particularly interesting. It's not even particularly relevant. Just like the, the the tunes and stories that that play in the mind, and so then you don't need it to switch off because you don't need it to go away because you don't have to give it much credibility. You don't have to imbue it with with meaning and value, so that in terms of of listening to the the uh, the creations of the story making factory, you don't even have to to make it stop. You can just stop your interest in it. You can stop your investment uh, in that and uh, and let it go. So, um, 
And that um, brings me to the, the in a way, probably the final theme to reflect on is that uh, you know we can we can be so stressed and oppressed by our thinking habits <coughs> that we believe that we would really be happy if we could just switch the whole thing off and just never think again. Ever had that that thought? <sighs> Please just shut up. <laughs> just shut up. And. Uh, and uh, and so we we can look upon thinking as a kind of brain disease, you know, this sort of yeah, uh, unstoppable noise going on between our ears, and that if it would just be quiet, then we'd be happy. But uh, as uh, Lumpur Cha would would say that uh, you know if if that if it was uh, an absence of thought that made us enlightened, so then then you know the this table would be would be an arahant, you know, these this this you know the the bricks of this wall would be enlightened because they don't think. <laughs> There's not a thought going through the, through that brick or this this table. It's not, uh, but it's not uh, it's not enlightened. So we shouldn't think of the absence of thought as being an enlightened state. It just means you're not thinking. <laughs> this means that there's there's quietness, but that that quietness is not intrinsically liberated. Uh, it's not a, 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 a an awakened or liberated state. And that uh, thought, once the mind has learned to concentrate and learned to to be. Uh, able to focus on the present and learn to not believe in the creations uh, and stories that the mind tells, then you can actually use thought, you can use words to uh, to help uh, the mind to understand things in a better way. We can we can learn how to think clearly. So this is um, an area of that is maybe not given so much, um, say, um, Coverage not talked about so much in in the, uh, the Buddhist meditation circles, um, but it's if you read the, the teachings, the suttas, that the Buddha makes a lot of what's called wise reflection, yoniso manasikara, and that there's uh, 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 these kind of phrases repeated over and over again, wisely reflecting. You know, a person will consider that you know, how that which is born is going to die, or that they will consider. You know, if my mind dwells upon uh, uh, thoughts of aversion, then that's the direction it will it will uh, it will be uh, inclined to go in. If the wisely reflecting, you consider if the mind is uh, dwells upon thoughts of loving kindness, then that will be the uh, inclination that that it, it has. So wisely reflecting um, is a, uh, uh, a very common phrase, and that's not an accident. Uh, so the the capacity to reflect, to use conceptual thought, to explore. What the and the nature of an experience is to, in a way, map the territory uh, of our experience, our perceptions, our thoughts, our memories, our ideas. There, there's a, an ability that we have um, to to say recognize patterns, how things work, and reflective thought can be extraordinarily helpful in uh, in uh, say developing that. So, uh, a few well-placed thoughts can save you weeks, if not years, of grief and suffering, <laughs> that uh, it, it's really um, uh, quite remarkable how when we pick up a, a, a situation or a pattern of experience and and consider it and use that the, the ability to investigate. Uh, so Yoni So Manasikara is one phrase you have in Pali. Tamma Vijaya is another almost identical phrase. Uh, uh, um, this way of investigating the reality, the, the patterns of, of an experience. That is a, um, a very powerful tool. In fact, Dhamma Vijaya is one of the factors of enlightenment. So the, the enlightened mind naturally employs this capacity to, uh, to recognize patterns, to understand, to see how things fit together and how one thing leads to another and how things interrelate with each other. And so that that's a very useful faculty that we have. It's an important capacity that we can draw upon. And using conceptual thought to, um, to say... Uh, Guide that and to help formulate that is is uh, is very uh, very helpful. So that just to be able to reflect, well, why uh, why am I so upset? You know, uh, I see somebody um, carrying out an action that they are. <coughs> I see somebody um, uh, parking the parking their car in a certain spot, and my mind says. Yeah, yeah, and my, my my mind's got upset about it. Look at that. I mean, why is my mind upset? Well, because my my mind has the perception that uh, that's my lawn. 
and then from that, that perception, they shouldn't park on my lawn. How dare they? Don't they know I'm the abbot of this monastery? They shouldn't be parking there. Yeah. Well, that's why my, my mind is upset, because I call that my lawn. If that wasn't my lawn, <laughs> then I wouldn't get upset. Aha. Uh -huh. So there's a reflection. You're using conceptual thought to, to look at, say, oh, look at that. You know, if I was, if I was a visitor to this monastery, and I saw somebody who's parked their car, you know, on the grass in front of my kuti, then uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't get upset. If, it, if I was just a visitor, I'd just say, oh, someone's parked their car on the grass. So, you know, people do that. So, so what? Then because it's my, my grass, then there's a reaction. So that uh, to, to use a few well-placed thoughts, then you can, you can save yourself a, a lot of grief. And uh, using the, the, the Buddha's teachings, um, taking uh, uh, you know, elements of the teaching, and just having those uh, well learned and, and well, well, uh, say well remembered, then you can apply those and and uh, and just uh, say bring those into consciousness and say times like that. Well, look, if I call that mine, it's a problem. If I, if I don't see it as mine, it's not a problem. <laughs> look at that. So that using the, the the Buddha's instruction about you know any kind of attachment to I and me and mine. I think it was the. Uh, um, uh, I think last week's talk, if I remember, about um, and that was doubt. It was the first week's talk um, about uh, about I and me and mine. And uh, oh, look at that! As soon as there's I and me and mine, there's suffering. With no I and me and mine, there's no suffering. Look at that! <laughs> so then, that is the application of thought and uh, the capacity to to uh, to describe things. And it's also uh, speaking of stories, why some stories. Uh, have lasted hundreds or thousands of years. Why well, we keep telling the same stories, or why stories carry a certain power, like the the uh, the ancient myths, uh, the, or the stories of the Buddha's life that we we tell, or the the ancient tales of uh, the um, the Hindu scriptures, or the Bible, or the the fairy tales uh, of uh, of Europe and around the world, uh, the stories of um, Shakespeare's plays and uh, so on. And we keep telling these stories because they give us a, a helpful map that uh, to our own experience, and so that's why you know fairy stories or myths or these ancient tales that we keep telling the same stories. We're using the stories to actually characterize what's going on inside us. They help us to make sense of, of what we're experiencing, and so that when a a, a child dies and uh, the um, the the grief of the of the mother the the death of a child, then we we can uh, we can empathize with that. We we have a story to tell. It's like when the the Buddha gave the advice to to Kisagotami, telling uh, Kisagotami who brought her dead child to the Buddha, saying, hey, "Please, can you can you heal my sick child? You know, my, he he seems to have died, but I'm sure you can bring him back to life." And the Buddha says, "Well, if you uh, if you can get me, oh yeah, very easy. All you have to do is get me a mustard seed. It's one mustard seed. That's all." But uh, if you can get it from a house where nobody has died, uh, that's the, that's the important thing. But uh, um, just a mustard seed will do. But uh, it has to come from somewhere, where, from a house where no one has ever died. And so Kisagotami, she goes racing off to try and get the mustard seed. Oh, this is going to be so easy. Not, it's not difficult at all. Mustard seed is everywhere. And every house has this. And she goes to one house after another and and says, you know, "Can I have some mustard seed?" And they say, "Oh yes, sure." She explains why, and then. And she said, oh, by the way, has anyone ever died in this house? And they go, oh, well, of course, yeah. You know, just, uh, you know, last week my uncle died, or you know, oh yes, a month ago my grandmother died. And then house after house after house, she goes, and uh, uh, after some time she realizes there is no house in the whole city of Savati that has not had somebody die in it. You know, death is everywhere. And so that she's able to, to acknowledge and receive the fact that her son has died and he's not coming back. So this is a story. Uh, it's a story, but it's a really useful story, because you know, everyone who's had a, a a child or a loved one who's died, or some grief in our life, something that's lost, something that is broken, that can't be repaired, then uh, we we have a story like that, and it's a useful story. So uh, uh, by telling that story and reflecting on that, we can say uh, 
draw upon that in us which says, oh yeah, that's right. I, I, I do feel a grief that this thing that was precious to me uh, has, has, has died. It's, this is this, this um, loved one or this, um, uh, this cherished possession or this faculty that I had. I used to be able to hear clearly and now I sit here for the whole Dhamma talk and I'm just, even with the good Amravati sound system, it's just mumbles, you know. I used to be able to hear and I now get 10%. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind. But, uh, sometimes it's like that. The, the, the sense of grief and loss, it's broken. My hearing is gone, or my vision is gone, or my thinking faculties have gone, and it's not going to come back. There's a grief there, but then the story of Kisa Gotami is like, that, that story helps us to recognize, yeah, that's how it is. That's, the, that's always been the way the world is, and it's never been different. And the fact that I, I assumed that somehow I could go through life and never have uh, the experience of loss, nothing that I love to be broken or, or separated from me. I was foolish. I was, I was uh, in a deluded state to think that, that it could be that way. Ah. So the story helps us to let go. So um, I would, uh, even though the title of the, 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 uh, the talk today implies that if we could just stop the st you know, all stories <laughs> altogether, I would suggest that yeah, stories can be useful, but it's only when they won't shut up, <laughs> when you can't switch them off, and also when you, you only get like the first 5% and then it goes off with another story and then another and then another and then another. You never actually get to hear the whole story. Uh, but uh, when uh, stories, when, when uh, thoughts are um, used in context and they're, they're applied with, with mindfulness and wisdom, then they can be something that uh, are as much of a blessing as uh, ending the, uh, the, the flood of conceptual proliferation. So I'll leave those thoughts with you for today and we can have a, a, a few refreshments and then gather back together. It's about five past three by this clock, so if we gather back about 20 past, 25 past for some dialogue.